Before we get into this week's episode, a message from Adam Kraut. Hello, my name is Adam Kraut, and I'm a candidate for the NRA Board of Directors. 150 words is all a candidate is allotted to describe themselves in a biography that accompanies the ballot, which is hardly enough to learn about anyone. My biography will start with proudly nominated by petition of the members. I run on a campaign of change and education, which you, the members, believe in. In order for the NRA to be more successful, we need to start by educating those around us. The NRA needs to push to return firearms education to schools. The reasoning is simple. First, children who learn appropriate firearm safety will be less likely to have an accident occur if they manage to find one unattended. Second, if firearms are demystified at a younger age, it is my belief that individuals will grow up to be less afraid of firearms, which will have positive political implications as well. In the spirit of change, I have also introduced a series of proposed bylaw changes, which would hold the board more accountable to the members. If adopted, the proposed changes would create an attendance policy, implement term limits so that board members could not run for a third consecutive term without being nominated by the members, and form an honorary board. To learn more about these changes and my positions, visit my website, adamkraut.com. Together, we can make the NRA the organization we deserve. No lowers or iron sights were exchanged for this endorsement, but they should have been. Welcome to the AR-15 Podcast. AR-15 Podcast. This is the podcast about your favorite black rifle. This show is for you. If you're building your first AR or you've been building ARs for years, there is something we can all do to take our black rifle to the next level. Welcome to another episode of the AR-15 Podcast. On this episode, we are back again by popular request to continue our Builder Series. J.D., how have you been doing? Uh, pretty good. Which Learning is, a lot. Which is funny because, you know, we're doing these back-to-back, and I just ended the last episode five minutes ago. Ah, uh, five minutes. You took a 25-minute break to go get food. Well, it was lunch. So. <laughs> well, you know, but, we would have been able to save that time for the listeners, except they all complain when I eat. I tried episode. to tell him that it was just a couple people, but Reed was going to eat his bologna sandwich, and what else did you have? Whiz. Cheese whiz. Cheese whiz, yeah. The well, the I mean, sound was- of the can when it goes. I mean, I thought it would have had cool sound effects to a builder show. We could yeah, no, open. No, no. I'm telling you, know. you, they would have they would have roasted me over an open <laughs> spit. They roast you anytime they can. All right. Well, so now that we've gotten through our little shop talk here, we're going to talk this episode about preparing a parts checklist. So. I think I want to begin by kind of illustrating why this is important. You know, JD, I, on more than one occasion, you know, at the beginning of my journey to, you know, begin building ARs, sat staring at a mostly compete rifle sitting on my bench, missing one critical component. Oh my Thinking gosh. to myself, <laughs> well, crap, what have I done? You know, now I'm another five days out going and finding whatever it is I need from Brownells or, you know, and we talked in the last episode about, you know, your local retailers. When I started building, there really weren't a whole lot of local companies that are were well stocked. So, I mean, really, it was a pain to get apart. And I can tell you, there was no end of swearing at myself for not having prepared well. 
So I, I think it's important to basically have a checklist and just and get everything checked off the list. Make sure you get it. Make sure that it's all lined up. And, you know, it's a good way <clears throat> to think about and consider um, anything that might be a compatibility issue. A good way to think about and consider um, how the direction of your build is proceeding. You know, honestly, if you fall in love with a handguard and the handguard requires that you um, have – um, a barrel without a front side base, then certainly it makes no sense to buy a barrel with a front side base. So, I mean, just being able to have the checklist sometimes allows you to cross-reference everything, check it, and make sure that everything is going to work. Um, and that makes for a, I think, a more satisfying build. <clears throat> so that's why I suggest you do it. You know, and honestly, there was a period of time where I did it for all of my builds. But as I became more familiar with the components that I needed for a build, uh, as my stock of spares grew, um, I am today not routinely preparing checklists because more likely than not, I will remember the pieces I need or if I have forgotten them, it's, I have something in my uh, shop that will take care of that need. But Oh, if you so were. you you have basically become Obi Wan Kenobi, where he's fighting Vader and then he just disappears and he's one with the Force. That that's you right now, right? Well, except nobody had to stab me with a lightsaber. I'm Jar Jar Binks, so I still need to make a list. <laughs> <laughs> All right, if that's who you want to be in the entire pantheon of Star Wars characters, then so be it, Jar Jar. All right, <clears throat> so um. I want to start with the upper receiver and, you know, I think the upper receiver is the component, the, the aspect of the build that has the most technical requirements. You know, I think the lower receivers are just easy. <clears throat> Don't be talking about my lower receivers like that. They're classy. No, you're easy. Your lower receivers are sheltered. <laughs> They're triggered easily. So, um, <clears throat> you know, I think that when we get started, we need to look at receivers. Uh, upper receivers, as we've come to understand it, are really pretty basic. Um, most standard upper receivers are built by a handful of manufacturers. They have um, typically a stamp or an indicator of you know where they're manufactured from, and people just buy them. Um, they're not typically components that have special um, markings or that are uh, custom made by um, a retailer or manufacturer to, you know, fit whatever, you know, uh, requirements they have, but sometimes they are. Um, uh, let's say, for instance, uh, Arrow Precision has an upper receiver that has a very specific um, connection point for uh, their proprietary handguard. And so, you can buy that proprietary upper receiver or one that has just a standard thread pattern for a barrel nut. Um, <clears throat> but I'd say by and large, most upper receivers are interchangeable. So that being said, uh, I think some of the considerations for your upper are what material you're going to have. So, you know, we have ordinarily, um, what is it, the 7075 and the 6068? JD, that's a technical question. Jar Jar. All right, Jar Jar. Would you 
confirm that for me. Yeah. So in terms of the two standard aluminums that we use, the um, 7075 is a tougher material that is used by more manufacturers striving for quality. Than 61, 6061 versus 7075. Okay. So the 6061 <clears throat> is a material that's typically not used as much um, by those retailers that are trying to strive for um, higher quality. You know, I, I don't know that there is enough, uh, I don't know, empirical understanding or evidence or internet lore that tells you that aside from the specific metallurgical characteristics of one or the other, uh, that anybody has ever had one of these things fail because of the material that it was made from. Um, you know, uh, other considerations in your upper receiver, whether it's going to be a flat top or whether it's going to be a standard A2 or A1 upper receiver. And those really kind of hearken to the issue of whether or not you're going to have a clone build or a build that uh, follows a specific form factor. Um, let's see. You know, what I think, about what about matched? I mean, matched with your lower. <clears throat> you know, uh, I think that uh, if the aesthetic aspect of your build um, requires that degree of um, synchronization, that it's important. But I think that you tend to find matched sets are usually sets that are milled from uh, a billet, and they are programmed by the manufacturer such that the upper and the lower um, have uh, similar transition elements. So, you know, uh, where they meet, your magwell lines are going to line up and, you know, your um, where your receiver mates in the rear. Um, uh, there can sometimes be places where they don't mate up or uh, the lines don't match as precisely. And so you can eliminate some of that. But I think in terms of function, it's, it's, it's irrelevant to function. It's purely an aesthetic. Um, so personal preference would be, I, I would say so. See, I'm, I'm on the thing where, you know, I, I love Manovesky, my arrows. I've got new frontier armory stuff. I've got other uh, uppers and lowers. I just cannot, and maybe it's a, a total thing that I need to lay on a, you know, gun builder's couch and, you know, have some deep hypnotherapy on it, but I just cannot mismatch uppers and lowers. I feel like they belong together. I'm like until death do us part or something blows up at the range, y- y'all need to stay together. But that's just my <laughs> personal preference. Um, <clears throat> let's see. <laughs> He's just going to ignore me I, and move I, on. I, I'm, I'm, I just don't know how to address that. Um, some of the other things I think that you can consider in terms of your upper receiver are going to be, um, does it have a forward assist? Does it have a deflector? Um, you know, these are aesthetics once again, but sometimes people will go far and wide to find, uh, the receiver that matches an aesthetic. You know, <clears throat> I am not an adherent in terms of upper receivers to any particular uh, theory that there is one that is better than another um, because functionally they serve the same purpose in their role regardless of who makes it. And I don't think that the manufacturers tend to go 
all that crazy with them when they are making them. So um, I think getting the material you want, um, if there's a coating that you're looking for or a color, then getting that. And then some of the other features like we talked about, like the does it have a forward assist? Is it a flat top versus a handle? You know, does it have a deflector? Is it matching your lower? I think those are things that really come into play as a secondary considerations. Um, upper receiver parts kits. So provided we're looking at a standard upper receiver, you're going to need a forward assist and you're going to need an ejection port cover. So you have some flexibility with your forward assists. It's not a place where companies have spent a whole lot of time trying to uh, reinvent the wheel. Um, there are some neat forward assists that kind of get away from the standard forms that we're used to seeing, the teardrop and the just standard push button. Um, I think Strike Industries has one that I'm particularly fond of. But, you know, once again, they're aesthetic. Uh, in terms of the Ford Assist, it serves the same function regardless of what the button looks like. Uh, ejection port covers are very much the same way. Uh, there are a lot of people that uh, have brought ejection port covers that are uh, sporting interesting slogans that <clears throat> uh, stand for your beliefs. Uh, ejection port covers can be... Um, I think there's uh, a few strike industries might be one that makes them that are kind of trying to reinvent the mousetrap. Uh, not a bad thing, but, you know, certainly uh, whoever has different ways of, of coming to mark with those things, uh, uh, you can personalize your build there. But uh, if your upper receiver has the right hole for a Ford Assist, you're going to need to buy that. And if your Buying an AR is going to more than likely have an ejection port cover requirement, so you'll need to get one of those. And they sell them as a handy kit. Uh, Brownells has a kit that has both of them, and they'll have all the parts you need. Um, let's see. <clears throat> You're going to have to get a barrel. So in terms of the build that we kind of identified at the beginning, we were talking about a 16-inch barrel. Barrels uh, in that range are pretty convenient and easy to get and very easily um, in stock and there's not a whole lot of variety in terms of uh, what goes on in that barrel. Um, you're likely to have uh, a choice between, uh, in this case, I, we're assuming a 5.56, five, right, or a, a 2.23 JD. So mm -hmm. um, you have uh, some considerations about uh, how it's chambered. You know, the standard 5.56, five, a 2.23, or a 2.23 Wild are pretty common. There are some other proprietary chambers. We've seen them around. We've talked about some of them in past shows, and certainly they all add to the idea of interchangeability between the 2.23 and the 5.56. Five, so certainly, uh, just as a uh, reminder, the conventional wisdom is that we do not fire 5.56 five, and 2.23s, but we buy... 5.56 barrels to fire, 5.56, 2.23, anything else you can throw out of the 5.56. Uh, at the same time, the 2.23 Wild uh, is uh, the attempt by um, uh, an excellent um, individual, Bill Wild, to come up with a chamber that is going to bridge the gap between the 2.23 and the 5.56 very well as well. So I think the 2.23 Wild is very commonly seen uh, out there in the wild. Um so you no pun intended. Um, <clears throat> in terms of barrel twist, I think it's always something that comes up. Um, you know, uh, the twist rate on a barrel um, in the AR sphere, I've seen them 
as slow as 12, as high as 7. Uh, 7 is what we see on most um, ARs these days. 9 is common in the middle. And the um, thing you need to consider is the twist rate imparts spin on the projectile. And so the more spin, in other words, the faster you get that rev- uh, revolution inside the barrel, i.e. the sooner you get a full revolution, which means a shorter distance. So you get a full revolution in a one in seven, one revolution every seven inches versus one revolution every 12 inches and a one in 12 or one revolution every nine inches for one in nine. The faster that bullet is, the heavier a bullet you're going to be able to stabilize. So I think the conventional wisdom is a one in nine is going to get you up to about a 69 grain bullet. You know, certainly people have done more. Some people wouldn't dare go um, over uh, some lower number, but you know certainly I think that you can figure out through your own investigation where that range lies. Um, me, I prefer the one in sevens. I like to get up to as much as a 77 grain projectile, and the one in seven stabilizes those. So that's what you're going to think about when it comes to twist. Um, unless you're a machinist or unless you're a very competent gunsmith, there's likely nothing you're ever going to do to touch upon your um, gas port uh, in the barrel. So uh, it's not even a factor or a um, specification that I've seen listed in the barrel stats for you to observe. I don't think you can buy or find easily that um, statistic mentioned so you could compare um a 16-inch barrel with a smaller gas port versus one with a larger gas port. But um, it is important to consider in terms of your barrel um, what your chamber and barrel are lined with. Um, a lot of barrels are chrome-lined. Chambers are chrome-lined. Sometimes you can have variations on a theme. Chromed chamber, but not a barrel or not a not your rifling. Um, there are other linings, um, nitriding. Uh, is another coating. Um, <clears throat> all of these treatments are going to impart different uh, characteristics uh, to the barrel. And so just my thumbnail sketch and understanding on the barrel is that if we are going to chrome line the barrel, then what you have done is laid over a layer of material that is going to, let's say for the sake of illustration, round off the crisp edges of your rifling. So the chrome lining creates a very durable surface. Chrome-lined barrels can withstand a great deal of abuse, but because the crispness of the rifling has been diminished by the application of the material, you're going to sacrifice some accuracy. So contrast that with a barrel that has not had that on it, and that barrel will be more accurate inherently. So let's see, what are some of the other considerations? You know, a hammer-forged barrel, cold hammer-forged barrel, is an excellent barrel. They're very durable, and there are elements to that process that create quality barrels, FN barrels, are made that way, and I seek out barrels Mm -hmm. like that. But if you want a precision uh, long range tack driver, um, more than likely you're not going to want to go that route. So you're going to want something that has cut rifling and it's likely to be made out of a material that's going to be more easily cut. 
so is stainless steel barrel with cut rifling and is going to provide rifling that is crisper, that is going to provide more accuracy because of its rifling. But at the same time, it's less durable. And we hear competitive shooters talk about changing out barrels. It's because they've worn out aspects of the barrel because of the use they put it through, and they have to go to a new barrel from time to time. So those are some of the thoughts and considerations that you're going to have to go through in your brain when trying to pick a barrel. Um, <clears throat> you know, I think probably um, the most obvious external features are going to be profile and whether or not you have a front side assembly or provision for a gas block. So in terms of profile, um, you know, JD, I have never been married to one profile over another. Um, I will typically take um, price effectiveness versus a barrel profile most any time. Now, I think that if you're trying to go for a very um, lightweight build, well, barrel profile might edge out over price in terms of what you're going to choose. Um, and gas block and front side assembly, <clears throat> you know, really I think the choice between the two for me dovetails into whether or not I'm going to have a free-floating handguard or a two-piece handguard. Um, it's real easy to basically use the two-piece handguards with the front side assembly because, um, you know, you have your caps and you have a D-ring on the rear of the barrel assembly, so it's going to be the mechanism for securing that handguard. And, um, you know, I'm not really into the taking out the taper pins to remove a front side assembly uh, side of uh, the world simply because uh, I think the last time I tried that, even my gunsmith couldn't take out the pin. So um, I got a little frustrated with that process. Um, it's not supposed to be something that you cannot do at home. Uh, it requires a few specific tools, but <clears throat> I'd rather buy a barrel that doesn't have a front side assembly if I'm going to put a free floating handguard on it than to try to engineer another solution. Um, you know, I think that covers a lot of the principal elements there for me. Um, JD, what do you think on barrels? You know, I don't have as much knowledge uh, on barrels when it comes to read. I listen to the interviews we do even before I joined the show to pick out the barrels um, that I wanted to do. And as I've dived deeper into deciding what I want um, to do with my rifles, the, the different builds, the different aspects, like knowing I need to go with heavier uh, profile barrels for a distance rifle like a 6.5 Creedmoor or I'm building another SBR, so I want to do. I want it to be as light as possible. So using a, a lightweight or a pencil barrel from Faxon. So I mean, there is a lot to learn on it, and I know it's like uh, drinking from a fire hose if you're building for the first time. But if you decide, like we talked about in the last episode, exactly what you want your rifle to do, uh, you are going to be able to be led to the barrel that will be what you want. That'll include the how it's coated or how it's lined, the twist, the length, the, all sorts of things. So it may seem like there's a whole lot of knowledge flying at you right now about barrels, but if you just take it in the bite-sized pieces that you need for the specific build that you have in mind, uh, it's going to be a whole lot easier to, to narrow your focus down on the barrel you want to build or you want to buy for your build. I think that's a good point. <clears throat> So uh, next I want to touch on gas blocks. So it's a critical component of your build. 
And it's something that uh, provides a great deal of latitude of choices. So I think really when it comes down to gas boxes, you have um, two, I guess, principal characteristics you need to decide between, whether it's going to be adjustable or not. So adjustable gas blocks are typically um, requested, demanded by shooters who use uh, suppressors. And I would... I would hazard to say that absent that specific requirement, I cannot think of a demand that would suggest an adjustable gas block. So if you're building a rifle and you never intend to put a um, suppressor on it, then I don't know that an adjustable gas block is something you need to even look at. Um, <clears throat> profile is something that's important for a gas block. Um and by profile, I mean how high it sits off the barrel because at some point you may get yourself uh, handguards that are going to be incompatible with the profile of your gas block. And that's kind of frustrating to go through the trouble um, to direct your build in a direction only to have two parts of it not line up for your purposes. So um, you want to consider that in your gas block. Um I think materials in terms of what it's, how it's coated or what it's made of. I think those are aesthetic elements. Um, I think it's important to consider how it's going to attach. So for an example, there are, there are gas blocks that clamp onto the barrel. There are gas blocks that basically secure themselves through set screws. There are gas blocks that require holes to be drilled through the barrel and the gas block uh, that have taper pins run through them. Um, so right there are just three ways for your gas block to attach. <clears throat> I think at this point, based on what I've experienced and um, suggestions uh, from listeners and individuals whose opinions I, I tend to trust and believe in, um, my direction is in, is, is, uh, looking towards clamped on gas blocks just in terms of the amount of surface area of the gas block that is touching the barrel uh, in terms of security, uh, restricting the gas block rotating on the barrel. Um, but that being said, many of my gas blocks are secured with basically set screws and I don't tend to buy barrels with uh, dimples for those set screws, and nor do I dimple my own barrels. But in all of that time, I've never had any issues with those. So um, just figure out where you want to be on terms of that, and I think you'll be able to find any number of quality gas blocks to solve your solutions there. <clears throat> you know, uh, I think the next thing to consider is the gas tube. You know, it's the, it's, it's the, the highway that allows your rifle to run. It's going to throw the gas through the rifle to, you know, begin the cycle of uh, ejection and, you know, chambering a new round. So it's important to get one. But as far back as the beginning of the uh, AR to not all that uh, recent, uh, they, were st they were typically stainless steel tubes. And, you know, they were all the same. Today, you can find some that are nitrided. Um, they're black. Um, the nitriding, uh, is just, I think, another way to coat and protect the material itself, preventing, uh, erosion or some other, 
concerns, but I don't think that there is any necessity to go that route. But um, I think that uh, you will find that the gas tube is probably the most cost-effective piece of your rifle uh, for something that's so critical. Um, <clears throat> the barrel nut for your rifle, uh, if you're talking about a traditional uh, barrel nut, uh, you're going to either have a spring and a D-ring and a retainer ring to um, secure the element that will connect your handguard, or it's going to be stripped, and you may have a handguard that is going to mate specifically to that barrel nut. Um, and we're talking about basically a, the, the mil-spec barrel nut. But there are any number of barrel nuts that you may be um, required to uh, install on your rifle because of the handguard choice you make. And so the barrel nut is something driven, I think, principally by your handguard choice. But I don't know that there is any way to divorce the two. Whatever handguard you pick, you're going to have to use the barrel nut they elect. Uh, and so I don't, I don't know that there's any way to up your barrel nut game with a custom barrel nut. Um, <laughs> so it's just going to be driven by other factors, but it is something that you're going to have to have, um, to secure that barrel to your upper receiver. Um, handguard, uh, JD, why don't you, why don't you step in here? Because I know you've bought one or two of these. I mean, for handguards, there's about as much customization as you can get as, as you want. I mean, things that, that pop off the top of my head, um, you know, make sure they, as Reed mentioned, make sure they match up with your gas block. But the the customization of handguards is probably one of the most, you know, it is the most customizable part of your AR if you think about it. It's, it's the most visible. But uh, you've got things like uh, F1 that does some pretty cool handguards. Arrow's got theirs. Um you know, it looks like Keymod is kind of slowly dying a slow, slow death, even though I have rifles with Keymod on it. But M-Lock seems to be the way to go. I still have a quad, a quad rail on one of my rifles. But th- there's so many things. Uh, Daniel Defense makes rifles. Uh, Brigand Arms, uh, man, they've got those carbon fiber woven yeah. uh, handguards. And we had them on about, gosh, it must have been about two years ago. And they're talking about it. I wasn't really sure about it, but now I see their stuff all over the place. I'm like, that could be a pretty slick setup for one of these builds that I want to do a little bit light, lightweight. Yep. yep but want to yep. add some flair to. So there, there's all types of handguards, even to, you know, like the old trusty ones that Reed has mounted on the front of his rig. I mean, you know, he's got the old A1, A2, mm-hmm. all those handguards there and the furniture. In fact, if you ever go to his house, you know, you, you sit at the dining room table. You don't you don't actually sit on, you know, like the wood or anything like that. He actually has like those old school handguards as where you rest your hands and stuff. So there's so many options if you're doing it retro or you're doing something new or you want it to look industry standard. I mean, Faxton's got some um, handguards coming out. V7, I just uh, talked to them a little bit ago. They've got like magnesium handguards coming out that are light as all get out. I mean... It is really, um, I guess, the bling. I mean, where you could totally do something crazy to your rifle and customize it and make it your own and do something different. And, man, you will go down the rabbit hole if you're shopping for handguards and you don't know where you want to go. 
because you're going to see when you're like, I like that. And then you're going to click the next page and you're going to see something else. But it's one of those areas where you want to make sure it, the, the link matches up what you want to do. Some guys like the, you know, the barrel being a turtle head poking out. Some guys like the handguard covering over the barrel and then the muzzle device puts the blast forward. Make sure you have a muzzle device that moves the blast forward or you're going to see that handguard explode. Um, but there's all different sizes and, and shapes and uh, people coming out with different length handguards for any type of build that you can imagine. So um, it's really one of the places where you see constant change in, in innovation uh, for the AR platform. So, you know, really, I think when it comes to handguards, there are enough choices that we could probably do a two-part series just going over all of them. Crazy. So, because of the way the AR is designed, you're not going to have to worry about the barrel nut. Whatever barrel nut is included with an AR um, handguard is going to work. Um so I think your principal concerns are going to be length, um, and only as much as you have to consider what happens if the length is past your muzzle device, because as JD said, you'll have to direct the, the exhaust, uh, or else you risk either uh, detonating the end of your handguard or detonating your hand holding onto the end of your handguard. Um, the other thing I would, I would suggest is that you're not going to handguard any shorter than your gas block. Um, certainly, uh, it can prove problematic if the gas block's exposed and there's any force applied to it by accident or intentionally and, uh, something moves or if a gas tube gets, uh, impeded or, uh, broken. So, uh, I think the handguard should serve to protect the, the gas block. Um, and really, I guess at that point, you know, sky's the limit. Be an informed consumer, but don't settle for anything less than what you want. Absolutely. <clears throat> All right. So next, I think it's important to touch on the bolt carrier group. So in terms of the bolt, the bolt, I've only seen one kind of bolt innovation that would um, might cause me to consider uh, uh, not getting the bolt that a group would standard uh, be standard to come with and that's uh, the is it sharps that makes that bolt with the uh, I guess uh, they've changed the geometry of the bolt so that they they, they claim that it, it is less susceptible to breakage uh, and more severe wear um, so other than that I think you're gonna find by and large uh, a bolt is a bolt is a bolt is a bolt. Now, you can coat your bolt carrier group, which would include the bolt, with coatings that will affect uh, lubricity, um, friction, uh, the requirements for lubrication from external sources. And so um, that might be something that you want to consider when looking at a bolt carrier group. Um, so... I've seen, what is it, nickel Teflon, um, or some of the other nickel boron, um, QPQ mm-hmm. and nitriding are essentially very similar, if not identical treatments. Um, you've got chrome lined, you've got phosphate, um, you know, all of these components or these coatings are going to provide for different, um, 
I guess. Do they do do they do titanium yet? Uh yes, I believe they do. I think those are the gold ones. I'm I'm holding out for kryptonite. I mean, if I could get <laughs> if I could get one of those coated in that, I think I may be able to get my wife to let me agree to like buy anything I want because you know, kryptonite would be your weakness. So I'm not sure about that. I think your wife's just gonna have to wait. That um, might be a bucket list. You know, uh, really, I think you know there are a lot of commercially available coatings that provide those kinds of characteristics. Um, you know, the the bolt is the component that's moving through your rifle at speed, um, and so it's something that has been the. I'd say the, the central element in a lot of failures when it comes to um, rifles being not properly lubricated or being dirty or some of the things like that. And so in terms of uh, those issues, I think it is important to um, consider what coating you're going to use because I think it will be helpful in maintaining your rifle and keeping it shooting. Um, <clears throat> I think another element uh, when considering a bolt carrier group is weight. Um, there are some uh, lightweight bolts that people have been manufacturing for some time now, and they uh, provide for rifles that are tuned quite differently. But that weight can also be uh, a component of a weight-saving effort if that is the direction your build is going. I think a lot of times uh, changing the weight of your bolt is driven by timing issues and trying to make your rifle cycle uh, reliably, uh, depending on whatever uh, other uh, build components are included in the build. And so I don't tend to try to go for lightweight bolt carrier groups. I tend to go for full weight, uh, full auto bolt carrier groups because... Um, it's a bolt carrier group that has the most mass attached to it um, for purposes of, um, I guess, effective cycling in my rifles. Um, any other? Well, you know what? Here's another thought for the bolt carrier group. That would be ejection. You know, the tendency, I believe, for higher-end manufacturers is to include extra components that um, allow for the extractor to be, um, I guess, Stiffer, and uh, the presumption is that helps with ejection. Um, I've I've never really had ejection issues with any of my rifles, and so um, I do have uh, the device. It's just a little. It's like a donut that sits around the uh, uh, spring on the uh, extractor. So you know, it's something that you can um, attend to, uh, take it apart, see if it hasn't. If it doesn't, it's just a very in- inexpensive component. Um, and you can include that into your bolt carrier group. Um, but having it already there is nice. So past that, I, I can't think of any factors that come to mind. JD, what do you think about in terms of buying a bolt carrier group? Um, I look for reliability and uh, rely on reviews of the brand or, or knowledge from those that I trust to buy. Um, I haven't, I've tried, I think I have a nickel boron that's mm-hmm. going in the 6.5 Creedmoor from Aero Precision. Um, I, I have a lot of Daniel defense bolt carrier groups, um, that I trust and, and rely on. Um, one of the, I'm trying to remember who the manufacturer is. 
um, but they have like a double ejector. Um, I'm curious in that to see if it helps, but I really don't have any problems with ejection. And, and if, and if I ever had anything like that, it usually is related to the gas block, um, or, you know, tuning the adjustable glass gas block for the suppressor or then taking the suppressor off and not retuning it. Right. Um, but I think the, the bolt carrier group based on coating and weight, um, I haven't really looked to save a lot of weight in the bolt carrier group, but the coating is something I'm just jumping into to try that, that nickel boron out. See how I like it. You know, you didn't um, say something that caused me to reflect. Um, in terms of the material that your bolts are made of, um, uh, the manufacturers who are trying to stick more closely to the durable components are going to shout loud and proud the materials uh, they're made of. Um, and, you know, it's a spec that I look for, but honestly, it's not one I remember. Um, another element is to consider whether or not it has the um, MPI, the magnetic particle imaging testing done on it. Um, you know, these things are indicators of testing and quality control. And in terms of um, your purchase of a bolt, what you want is something that's going to stand up to the abuses that it's going to be put through. So um, paying attention to the quality of the materials and the testing and the quality controls, and I think that's the important part. Um, <clears throat> let's see. It appears to be a material acquired by a mill. What is it? 9310 steel. So... Not being a metallurgist, I couldn't tell you what that means. I'm sure we have a metallurgist that could. But, you know, <clears throat> making sure that it is being built to the proper quality control standards is important. And that way you don't get something that's made out of crappy pot metal uh, that's going to break down on you. Um, charging handle is something that's important to put down on your parts list. But... I want you to remember that the charging handle, kind of like the handguard, is something that is, uh, is subject to a lot of preference. Uh, meanwhile, in terms of its actual utility and function, um, the critical component of the uh, charging handle is not going to change. And that would be the element of the charging handle that's going to ride in your upper receiver and actuate your bolt for you. It, one is the same as another. So it's really in terms of the actuation components of the charging handle itself um, that you're going to be looking for in terms of variety um, and colors. I guess colors are another variety element. What have you? I I have, um, I've always thought charging handles, just a charging handle ordered a standard one um, on my infidel. It has a uh, Raptor. Uh, I have a LWRC. I also picked up a, after feeling what it's like on the Raptor, uh, I picked up an LWRC, um, ambidextrous charging handle. And I tell you what, um, for me, it makes a world of difference. I will replace all the standard ones on my rifles because of the way it feels, um, to, to charge the rifle doing that. The, the ease, the different, the, the different feel of it. It feels much smoother. It's not, uh, I guess basic is what I'm looking for. Basic and rough would be a normal charging handle, which is fine to get the job done. But if you, if you, if you pick up a rifle or if you have one rifle that has 
a Raptor or an LWRC ambidextrous charging handle, something that's smoother, I tell you what, you're going to slowly crave to, to drop the cash to uh, move over and make sure that uh, each one of your rifles has one of those because it is just a different, is it like when you experience it for the first time, it's like, what? dang, that, uh, that makes a difference in the enjoying uh, shooting because I'm not racking my thumbs. I'm not ended up busting my fingers. Uh, it just feels smooth and, you know, you're paying for more material and more technology, but I think it's definitely worth the investment on the charging handle. So I think the next thing after that would be the muzzle device. Muzzle devices are interesting because once again, um, in terms of necessity, it's not strictly speaking required to have a muzzle device on the end of your rifle. Mm -hmm. I mean, none of my hunting rifles have a muzzle device on them. So you could fire your AR with that one. But the muzzle devices, depending on whether you're talking about a brake, a compensator, a flash hider, um, a QD mount for a suppressor, they all serve a different function. And because of the various, you know, design considerations, how the geometry is, is machined, they can do different jobs in different ways. And some of them cross over into different aspects of each other's sphere and do multiple jobs very well. So I guess there is kind of no real easy way to tell you what to buy there. But I will tell you that more often than not, uh, you are going to be required to get some kind of washer for your muzzle device, whether it be a crush washer or a peel washer. Um, I've used uh, an accurizing set of washers that help me index um, um, muzzle devices. Um, and at the same time, there is or are a few muzzle devices, at least one, uh, on the market that require no um, washer because they basically lock themselves onto uh, the end of your barrel. Uh, uh, it's just the way they're designed. And so um, that would be something that you would take into consideration if you were going to go that right route. But, um, you know, I'm driven a lot by the suppressors that, that I use. So, uh, I don't know, J.D., what are your thoughts on muzzle devices? I mean, they're just as uh, customizable to your rifle as handguards are. Um a lot of mine are driven by suppressors too. I'm a big fan of silencer co. So I use a lot of their stuff. So I have their uh, trifecta mounts. Um, I'll be jumping into their ASR mount stuff here soon, but um, I, I really enjoy the, the flaming pig on the end of my Noveski. I think it's cool as all get out. Um, we shot it in some low light when Anthony was out here and uh, it was pretty cool to watch in slow motion, the fireball that comes out the end. Uh, we also talked to NG2 defense, uh, recently, and uh, they have the Muzzle Max, which is a beefy uh, muzzle device. But holy smokes, it is fun to get out there and play with it and see the difference that it makes in uh, compensating for the, you know, the the blowback and the kick on your rifle. I'm trying to think who else. Um, it, the, my, the the list is a mile long. Uh, we had uh, Stacy from PWS. It's been a while, but man, PWS has some muzzle devices that are killer. Um, there's always something coming out that is new and, and, uh, it looks pretty innovative. So it's one of those things where you can, you can find the companies that are doing the, the innovation that are staying around and you'll see the companies that are dying off that aren't. 
but you'll see the test and you'll see the, the, the customer reviews on what they're doing. Uh, I love the flaming pig because it shoots everything forward. And so the rifle comes back right into my shoulder and that's okay. I'm a, I'm a big guy. I, it, it feels like a love tap. And so that, that's fine for me. It may not be fine for you. Um, the muzzle max device, it, it felt like it controlled everything on the rifle and the follow-up shots were really good. That may be more for you. Um, there's just, I'm trying to think what else I have on, on my rifles that, um, I have a standard A2 on my Daniel defense rifle. Um, I have that trifecta, which works really well without the suppressor on it, but I don't shoot it very often, but it's one of those, those places where like you have your handguard that's customized. Once you pick your handguard, you can kind of pick out what you want your muzzle device to look like in that, in that handguard. Do you want it to, to stick out or do you want it to set in? I mean, the options are really, the options are crazy. Well, and, and you know, I think some of the options are driven by very specific requirements. You know, a three gunner is going to want a rifle that has a muzzle device that helps him control, um, muzzle rise so that follow up shots are very easy. And that's not the same kind of requirement you might have if you're going to go be a blinker. You know, you can get a standard birdcage A2 uh, flash hider, I think for 15 bucks, you know. Yes, yeah, not you can that expensive. Go buy some of the higher end, you know, muzzle devices that'll control your um barrel rise for $150, you know. Uh if uh, budget is uh going to allow for it, then you know, get what you want, but certainly you don't have to sacrifice um, that aspect of your budget when you can get a more than adequate flash hider for $12. So, you know, I think that kind of wraps up the, the upper receiver in terms of the parts that you want to look for. Um, <clears throat> and, um, I think it's, uh, it's time to talk about lower receivers. You know, JD, that's kind of something that, uh, is right up your alley, isn't it? <laughs> hey, I have a vast collection of lower receivers. Yes, I do. Um, so I, I mean the the receiver as it comes to there's there's different types that you can get you know you get the aluminum there's a polymer um, there's also uh, Reed and I were exploring Tegra Arms is um, carbon fiber reinforced lower that's pretty lightweight um, I have a couple of those so there's all sorts of different uh, d- different manufacturers when it comes out to to lower receivers now Reed would you would you accept the fact that there's probably you know there's a Thousand people selling lower receivers, but there's probably 50 people actually making those receivers, right? Well, <clears throat> here's what I'll say in terms of the forged receivers. Yeah, it's probably a few custom shops because of the c- kinds of machines that are required to create the blanks. And, um, so you're essentially getting, uh, them to provide that piece to the company who does the remainder of the work. Uh, if you're talking about someone that has a row of CNC machines, then they're taking, you know, chunks of aluminum and they're making receivers in-house on the spot. And so I think you have to kind of differentiate, you know, what level of receiver we're talking about. And so, yes, of those high volume, more often sold uh, receiver options, yes, there are Fewer companies that make them for a larger, broader, uh, group of, uh, I guess, firearms companies. So, 
Uh, yes, that's very accurate. I don't know if I'd say 50, though. Uh, it's a pretty big piece of machinery that um, uh, takes the molten material and basically puts it under pressure into its proper form. That's a beast of a machine. Yeah. There's also there's also quality control issues and customer service issues that work with where you pick up your lower receivers. So research into that. I won't name names for the fear of Reed's A1 band hammer coming down on the top of my skull. Uh, but there are companies out there, big and small, that uh, their customer service, frankly, sucks. So if you have an issue with their product, you may get it at a heck of a deal, but realize that heck of a deal comes at an even greater price if you have an issue. And sometimes mass-produced stuff that gets rushed out that's a discount it really costs you more than what you're paying out. It'll cost you more in the long run if you have a problem with it. So really do your research on who you buy your lower receiver from, what kind of com- company they are. And every company is going to have problems, but it's their response to that those problems that speaks loudly about that company, what they believe, and how they treat those that spend their hard-earned money there. Yeah, absolutely. So what are the different aspects that you look for in a receiver in terms of uh, aesthetics, um, the way it's manufactured, um, some of the features you look for in a receiver? I, I look for very early on. Um, I like, I like the way the rifle looks like I like to picture how I'm going to build it out completely from all the components. And so the roll mark to me actually plays, plays a part in that. Um, some of the roll marks that I have on my rifles are just because, uh, I grew up in Oregon. And man, I, I love Oregon companies. That's why Nevesky is very high on my list. That's why V7, Radian, those guys, they're very high on my list because that role mark includes a place that I'm proud of. Uh, I'm proud to be from. Um, so that, that goes into it. I also look for machine, you know, uh, craftsmanship on it, quality control, um, how it, how it feels. Um, usually if I find one, I haven't branched out too far. Um, because I got my hands on a couple early arrow receivers and you know what? Um, about 70% of the 927 lowers that I have, uh, are arrow precision lowers. Um, because I like the way they look. I like the way they feel. They function fine in the builds that I have. Um, I feel like it's a manufacturer I can trust. Um, some of the other quirky stuff where like if you have a, if you have a roll mark that looks like a kid drew it on your product, I, I'm not going to be into that. There, there's some that are very popular, and I just look at it and I say that that, that doesn't look sharp to me. I want the rifle to look sharp, um, and maybe that's just goes back to my personal preference of what's in a rifle. So you know, I think it's important to point out that this show, when we talk about a builder series, is not to be an in-depth look at each component and all of the variables that are in it and, you know, talking about all of the the aspects that go into making a choice, it's to identify the fact that it's necessary as a component to your build and that there is some thought you're going to have to put into it. So please don't misunderstand any of our discussion for a, you know, soup to nuts discussion about everything that needs to be thought of or everything that goes into a particular choice. Um, we do that in much smaller chunks and have 
what, 234 episodes of, uh, back catalog that illustrate those <laughs> discussions. Yeah. So, you know, we're just talking in broad brushstrokes, the things that are going into your checklist. Um, so let's talk generally, JD, about a lower parts kit. And they, they run the spectrum. I mean, if we're, if we're talking about the total kit together, I mean, you can get, you can get basic, you can get upgraded, you can get advanced. You, I mean, it, it's really one of those things that you can customize on your rifle. Maybe not, it's not as fun to customize because you don't see it, um, but you definitely will feel it in the trigger. I mean, if you get a, a normal, uh, lower parts kit, it'll function. It'll work for you just great. But if you put like an upgraded Geisley, or uh Wisconsin Trigger Company trigger in it, you're going to feel a huge difference uh, between the two. There's going to be a difference in, in the feel, the pull, the break, uh, any creep that's in there. So, I mean, it really runs – it's one of the decisions you have to make, going back to the first show, on your budget. Are you going to invest in a higher-end lower parts kit, medium-end, low-end? Um, it's going to make a difference in how you do it, and you can customize the heck out of these components. I mean, you don't necessarily have to go to a one-stop shop and buy lower parts kits that are all assembled and put together. You could actually pick each one of these things, pick your trigger from somewhere else, you know, go ahead and take, get the takedown pins and the, the, the other little parts in there and get them from V7 in titanium or unbranded AR in titanium or do this safety selector from battle arms development. I mean, it's really, I think the the lower parts kit is probably, if I had to define it, would be the Lego, the most Lego part uh, of the AR because you can mix and match and put together your own kind of system or buy one of the pre-box kits that you just get instructions to build. I think that's fair enough. That so, was a deep response to my thought. Well, you know, I, I just thought I'd, I'd be one of the usual co-host contributors to responses when someone gets on a long-winded explanation. I just want to point out that I've like booked three people for inter- future interviews on the show while we're doing this too. So it's not like I'm just sitting here twiddling my thumbs, polishing my lowers. Well, and that's a good thing. All right. So <clears throat> let's see. Um, you know, it used to be that the receiver extension or the buffer tube was one of those things that had no variety. And so all of a sudden, a number of, um, Positions you could adjust to it into, uh, changed from, what was that, I think four or five to six and with a Voltor A5 setup, it's seven. Um, then you start having companies like PWS come out with a Gen 1 and Gen 2 enhanced buffer tubes. Um, I think there's more attention being paid to the buffer tube, but you know, certainly it is a critical component of your rifle build. So. Put some thought into that, and it doesn't have to be fancy, but it kind of can be these days. Um, buffers and springs. You know, I I can't tell you how many times we've had people come, you know write in with questions about you know fine tuning a rifle or trying to resolve a problem with a rifle, and so uh, buffers and the buffer springs are places where you can accomplish those things. Um, but I kind of adhere to the idea that you buy the standard. And wait for a problem to arise, um, because I guarantee you, uh, there's no way you're going to be able to diagnose the existence of a problem before you even begin firing your rifle in its completed form. Now, you may have preferences, 
I've developed preferences. I like particular kinds of springs, but that's different. So um, it's okay to start out with the standard buffer and the standard buffer springs when you build a rifle and then go from there. If a problem does not arise, then you haven't had to spend any more money than you needed to. And frankly, if you buy from brown owls and you're not satisfied or they don't work in the rifle, uh, they have a 100% lifetime satisfaction guarantee. So you can certainly send them back and buy what you do need if there is a problem. Um, <clears throat> so let's see. Stock. You know, once again, <laughs> um, it, it goes down. Uh, once again, to the elements that we've talked about uh, that allow you the greatest degree of um, customization. Stocks is another arena. Um, your stock is going to drive your buffer, buffer spring, and receiver uh, extension choices because if you get a rifle uh, stock, then you're going to have a different receiver extension or a different buffer and a different spring. Um, but between the collapsible and or adjustable and the fixed uh, rifle length stocks. There are so many choices out there. Uh, there is no end to them. You know, I think it goes back to ultimately what is the in- initial purpose of your build and uh, then just go from there. Um, so I don't know, JD, do you have any thoughts on stocks? I mean, we, you, you could really do a show or two on the stocks that are <laughs> on, out there. The universe of stocks. I mean, there's uh, just off the top of my head, we're talking about the Mission First Tactical Minimalist stock just the other day. Battle Arms Development has a PDW. So many people have PDW stocks that that are cool as all get out. Uh, Troy's got one. Um, they're on the higher end. You're paying three, four hundred, maybe five hundred dollars for those. Um, I've got a Magpul PRS stock that's that's over here that's going on a rifle. A Luth AR stock that's coming. Um, I really like LWRC's um, um, compact stock kit that they have. I think it retails for around 150 to great stock if you're looking to, to save some weight. Of course, you got your Magpul stocks that work. I mean, dude, I, I'm pretty sure there's more stock offerings in the stock world for ARs than there may be in the actual stock market because everybody's got one. There's all sorts of designs. Um, I'm going to have my hands on one of the Zulu stocks from Odin. Uh, Odin works that we had on just recently and those look different, but unique. So I'm excited to get my hands on that. So you, man, do some cruising, find other builds, people that have done stuff and uh, you can get the standard to start, or maybe you just want to jump right in and something that'll make it your rifle, that rifle that sticks out to you. Uh, this is one of the other areas of the AR that you can customize and make the handguard, uh, the barrel, uh, barrel device or the muzzle device and the stock. I mean, that's pretty much your three major points of uh, customization on an AR-15. All right. So <clears throat> I think really past that, there are only a, a couple of other, and I really don't even know how to classify them. They're just kind of, you know, incidental accessory parts. So um, uh, they can really affect or enhance the, um, way you enjoy your build. Um, but, you know, uh, there are things like a twang buster, which is just a little flat piece of Delrin that sits in the bottom of your receiver extension to help kind of minimize the noise that your spring's making. There's something called a receiver wedge, which basically uh, sits between your upper lower receiver 
um, in the rear of the receiver and basically takes up some of the slack in there. You can find probably a dozen different, you know, auxiliary pieces that are going to uh, affect or address some really tiny aspect of the build you have. And so in all of that, it really just is a matter of, is there a need that you're trying to address? And depending on what that need is, is there a solution? And certainly if there's a need and you have no solution, that's an opportunity for you to become a firearms industry entrepreneur. And I would encourage you to go out there and solve that problem. Heck yeah. But, you know, there are just no ends to the kinds of things that people can come up with and, you know, really impact the quality of a particular build. Um, you know, I think the last piece to really kind of go over would be the grips on your AR. Um, you know, the standard A2 grip is a functional yet inelegant aspect of your build. Um, they tend to come in the lower parts kits, but more and more lower parts kits are being customized to reduce the number of accessories or components included in them that may not be utilized. For instance, I probably have a box with eight A2 grips simply because I just don't tend to put them on my rifles. But um, it's something that you're going to have to get, and it's something you're going to have to use on a rifle. So um, it falls under the same category uh, that you're going to find when it comes to your handguards and your stocks. There's just no end of pieces available that are going to give you some degree of customization and individual expression. So uh, you'll need to take care of that. Um and, you know, I know that we – I didn't mention it on the lower parts kits, but did you talk about the um, – uh, oh, geez, I don't even know what they're called because I seldom ever use them. The trigger plate. Trigger from, plate? Yeah, whatever you call it. The thing that goes from your magwell to the – The trigger guard? Trigger guard. There it goes. And you see, that's just an old fart moment there. <laughs> we'll leave that in. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, – you know, it's something that some people customize. I, I I tend not to worry about trigger guards all that much. I usually use whatever comes in my lower parts kit. Do you yeah, customize your trigger guards? No, I mean I've seen I've seen companies that are, are doing it and doing different things, and I think that'd be cool. But like on the list of you know priorities, it's it's towards the bottom there because I guess I don't really look at the trigger guard that much. Hmm. Yeah, that's not a big high-priority item for me. But your rifle will be incomplete if you don't have a trigger guard, although it yeah. will still be functional. Yes, it will. So accessorizing? Yeah. <clears throat> so, you know, really, after you've got your rifle built, um, you know, I think some of the things to consider, and none of these are a requirement, but I think that if you're going to go ahead and follow through on the idea of creating a parts list and a budget and building a rifle out, um, you have to consider some additional items. Um, you know, I think first and foremost, you're going to have to think about sights. Um, you know, I'm, I'm an adherent to iron sights and everybody knows that and everybody gives me a hard time with that. Who's part of this younger crowd that, you know, hasn't had a battery fail or, you know, electronic device fail, God forbid. But, um, you know, I think iron sights are important. Um, optics, you know, whether they be, you know, a uh, red dot, holographic, you know, magnified optics, uh, 
they're all just uh, another element that helps you uh, with the uh, intended purpose of your rifle, which is to hit things that you intend to hit. So optics are important. Uh, slings, uh, any number of reasons to have one. I like to get the uh, same kind of sling we used in our uh, M16s in the Marine Corps. Um, because I'm familiar with how they operate in terms of slinging up in them and uh, getting a good stable shooting platform. Um, coatings, paint, you know, there are a lot of people that spray paint their rifles. There are a lot of people that get them Cerakoted or Duracoated or, you know, any number of um, uh, commercially available products. Um, cases, bags, these are important. Lugging that thing around to the range, getting it back home, transporting it to the range, whatever the case may be. Uh, magazines, you're going to have to have a magazine or it's um, not a semi-auto firearm, it's a single action firearm. And then, um, of course, ammunition. So are there any accessories that you think are not listed or critical? Um, magnifiers for your, for your optics, something you can decide to do if you take your rifle out a little bit further. Um, drums, uh, with magazines, ammunition, um, cleaning, cleaning gear. I think, uh, products to maintain your rifle. I guess about it. Anything I can come up with. All right. Well, I think that that is a pretty well-rounded parts checklist. I think that if you use that as a guide to help you tick off the things that you're going to need when you start your build, you should have on your bench everything necessary to go from beginning to end and have your build be ready for the range when you're done. Any other thoughts or consideration you think we need to bring up in a checklist, J.D.? No, I think you, you just need to be like Santa. You need to make your list and check it twice and uh, make sure you have everything from top to bottom um, and, and do your research. Your, your research at the top of the list should be it. Don't worry about it taking a while to put it together. Um, my, my advice is if you want it right now and to happen all right now, you probably should just buy something off the shelf Yeah. and – if you have some patience and you can make it work, I think you're really going to enjoy what you put together yourself and have great pride in that you are involved in every part of the build. Absolutely. All right. Well, I guess with that, we can uh, move on to closing out the show. J.D., can you read us out? Send your questions and comments through the website, ar-15podcast.com. That's ar-15podcast.com. That's where you can sign up for the new Frontier Armory C45 side-charging AR pistol giveaway. It's right there on the contest link. You can also support the show through Patreon or through PayPal. All of your support gets dumped right back into the show to help us grow and pay for new recording equipment and everything. No iron sights or lures will ever be bought uh, with your support of the show. So thank you to Tom, Jason, and Jim, several others that are supporting the show monthly. We appreciate you. That's ar-15podcast.com, and thanks for listening.
This has been a production of the Firearms Radio Network. You can find more information at firearmsradio.tv.